Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're going to love today's show because I'm talking with a couple of guys from the UK who've really focused in on the difference between antioxidants and polyphenols or plant compounds. And you're going to learn a lot of interesting things about the foods you can eat that make a difference for how your cells function and maybe why high-dose antioxidants are not a good choice for you. So listen through all the way to the end and you'll pick up a bunch of different pieces of advice for how you can perform better and feel better. This show is totally worth your time. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that we've just discovered a new way to make old cells behave like young cells. University of Exeter researchers found a way to rejuvenate those old cells, at least in a lab, which made them look younger and behave like they were younger cells. Within hours of this treatment, the older cells divided. They had longer telomeres, which are the caps on chromosomes that shorten as you age. One of the ways that we're looking to extend human life is by fixing that telomere problem. And the researchers were using compounds called resveratrol analogs, and that's a substance based in, or based in or found in uh, red wine, although in very small amounts, dark chocolate, red grapes, blueberries, and they added this stuff to the cells, and within hours, rejuvenation happened, which is kind of cool. And they said, this demonstrates that when you treat old cells with molecules that restore levels of splicing factors, the cells regain some features of use. Uh, resveratrol's been in use for a very long time, uh, in the fields of functional medicine and anti-aging, and there's transresveratrol and some other compounds and things like that uh, that come from grapes that are in uh, polyphenomenal, the polyphenol blend uh, that we just came out with. But the idea is that when you use these small signaling molecules, your cells can do some things that they probably were always designed to do if you were eating enough vegetables, which is kind of a cool thing. I expect to see a lot more research about how these types of compounds affect our cell biology over the next 10 or so years. Before we get into today's show, you probably already know about brain octane, which is the oil that raises ketone levels in your body, which gives you a ton of energy and fuels your brain with fat instead of sugar. In fact, the fat can be a backup source uh, to blood sugar. What you probably don't know, though, is that we have a three-ounce bottle that's TSA legal. You can take with you. You can refill. And we also have packets. So you can get a box of little single serving packets where you just tear off the top and dump it on your salad, pour it in your coffee when you're on the road. And I use this stuff when I travel. So every meal I have some brain octane, which completely removes my cravings. and gives me an extra source of energy. So if you didn't know, you could take it with you. Now you can. And that's Bulletproof Brain Octane on Bulletproof.com. And if you'd like to watch a video of this show, go to bulletproof.com slash YouTube, and you can check out pretty much the whole catalog here. And if you'd like to leave a review, go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, and we'll take you right to the show so you can subscribe, or you can say how cool it was, because this is going to be a cool show. Today's guests are Aiden Goggins and Glenn Matten, and this is two authors who write about some similar topics. Aiden wrote The Cert Food Diet, and Glenn wrote The Health Delusion. They're really influential parts of the international health and food discussion happening right now out of the UK. Aiden is a pharmacist with a master's degree in nutritional medicine, and Glenn has a master's degree in nutritional medicine. So these guys have spent a long time studying this stuff. They work in fitness, sports, nutrition, and have worked with professional and Olympic athletes. And Aiden is officially ranked as one of the most influential people in the UK food industry. So these guys have written a lot of cool stuff uh, that I've enjoyed, and I wanted to pick their brains today. So guys, welcome to the show. It's Hi, David. a pleasure, pleasure to be here. All right. So Aiden, say something so everyone knows your voice. Hi, David. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to talk about more about them cell survival pathways. All right. We can do that. And Glenn, say something. Yeah, it's a delight to be chatting to you, and I thought your preface with your, your fact of the day was you know, the perfect intro to what us guys want to talk about. It might have been planned in advance, uh, full, <laughs> <laughs> a full admission there. Uh, but the uh, the idea here is that you guys have really focused on some things like like the cert food diet. Very few people talk about you know, cert foods. In fact, let's just get into that. What is cert, S-I-R-T? Cert is short for sirtuin which refers to a, a family of genes um, that we all have. Um, there are seven sirtuins within that family. And it's a, an incredibly powerful 
activator within our cells of a whole bunch of really, you know, beneficial health promoting um, changes and all the stuff you were talking about in your your preface. Um, you know, we know that if we get the right polyphenols, these plant compounds into our diet, they can actually begin to speak to our cells and activate this incredible, incredibly powerful family of genes, which are being heavily researched for their longevity and disease prevention benefits. Glenn, that's a fantastic way of describing it, but you sort of got into this because you describe yourself as a foodie. <laughs> so how did you go from being a foodie into this field? Um, so I've, I've always enjoyed food and had that passion for food. Um, and really, it's just like the little snowball that gathers, you know, gathers momentum and gets bigger. Um, you know, academically, I became fascinated with the properties of food, the components of food. And I think one of the things that makes the cert food diet just so compelling is that we're not trying to isolate an individual component from food. You know, we're we're really trying to usher in this new paradigm where we respect the kind of complexity of food and this really rich tapestry of bioactive compounds, you know, this this huge, vast um, array of polyphenols that our food contains. And really, when we start to look at what effect that has on a cellular level, um, you know, these are incredibly potent signaling compounds um, that, that can have some amazing benefits. So I think it's just, you know, the more you scratch away at this subject, I just think it gets completely compelling, absolutely fascinating. And I think with this appreciation that we need to get our nutrients primarily from food um, and that there is this whole rich tapestry of nutrients that we're really not tuned into. You know, there's been so much debate around, you know, what vitamins we should have, you know, this whole debate around macronutrients and how we manipulate those, the whole, you know, sort of palaver with calories and, you know, this obsession with calories. And we've missed the massive part of, you know, plant foods that are really influencing our health. And that is going beyond micronutrients, macronutrients, calories, and seeing that there's, that there's this complexity to food that we're now beginning to understand. And for me, that's mind-blowing and, you know, something that I'm massively, massively excited about. And I think we're at the, the sort of a dawn of a new era, a new paradigm of how we understand why food is good for us and why certain plant foods are incredibly good for us. Uh, you talked about uh, plant foods here. What about some of these uh, animal foods, uh, things like uh, astaxanthin containing krill oil or some of the other things that are present in, oh, say, butter or in grass-fed animal fat? Are those a part of the story here? Um, absolutely. So I think we're, we're on no level saying that we should only be eating plants. Um, but I think it's making sure that plants have their rightful place alongside these other foods. So, you know, we're not advocating vegan diets. You know, we've got, we've actually got sort of no particular perspective on that really. I think protein is very important. I think, you know, certain fatty acids are very important that we would f find in, in, in fatty fish. Um, I think there's, you know, I think it's about getting the best from the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and kind of bringing those together into, into a, a complete diet. So we've got no sort of real agenda on that level. Um, I think it's, you know, and, and we respect that people eat in diverse ways and, you know, it might be pescatarians, it might be people who in, enjoy and eat meat. Um, you know, I, I think we're trying to bring the debate a bit further and say, Whatever way you eat in terms of, you know, whether you, your, your intake of sort of animal foods, if we can really harness the power of these plants alongside that, that's, that's where health comes from. It's not through having meat or avoiding meat or having fish or avoiding it. It's about the integration of these plant foods in whatever diet, you, you know, that your preference uh, leads you to. It's the integration of these very powerful polyphenols, which, you know, I speak to our genes. I think it's almost like how I explain it to the, to the athletes I work with. It's that the calories and the macros are the fuel of the cells. And you mentioned it yourself, I think, in a product you said, that with the right type of macros and the right type of food that you're eating, you can take the fuel you're eating from standard unleaded to high octane. Exactly. But, exactly. And it's so important and so vital, but we just can't look past the other key essential part which is what maintains the function and the health of the cells. 
and that's what these polyphenols do they repair and they eliminate the damage to our cells and they allow us to use a high octane fuel much more efficiently so you get the best of both worlds if you're not eating a lot of plants you're doing it wrong and and that's i think a, a core thing that all of us agree on and then yeah there's there's always questions people saying you know, should, should you do something else and what i find is a lot of vegans and vegetarians don't eat that many actual plants they're eating you know plant seeds or you know lots of starchy carbohydrates and maybe not a lot of colored compounds and then you get a lot of you know s- standard diet eaters who just eat a bunch of processed stuff with no polyphenols in it uh, and you end up with this idea that wait few of us are eating enough plants uh, and then what what do you put on the plants is a big but but Aiden you came at this differently you became a pharmacist and a nutritionist because you had your own disease that you needed to hack walk me through what happened there yeah so I initially qualified as a pharmacist I worked in the, both the pharmaceutical industry and as a community pharmacist for five years and then overlapping with this. I also did a master's in nutritional medicine and then branched out into nutritional medicine research and clinics. And the driving force for that was that I had an autoimmune disease. It was undiagnosed in earlier life and then in later life it led to a lot of issues. So I was half blind in one eye. I had um, six operations. Every MRI showed huge inflammation that the consultant wasn't able to bring down, hence the operation repeats. I went to every single nutritionist going as well, and I wasn't able to get much success. So alongside the consultant I was working at, we really took it on as a personal project and discovered basically the intricacies and the overlap of nutrition and medicine. And in my case, um, was actually a, a yeast problem um, where I had um, from birth where there was a fungus um, inducing what's called um, Graves' disease, an autoimmune thyroid disease, and the thyroid burned out and then actually caused hypothyroidism and a lot of complications due to that. But now um, I have a, the inflammation on the last MRI is fully res, um, rescinded, and um, I now I'm able to say like that I feel in the best health I ever have and it's fully under control, and that is true. A medical knowledge, but employing the nutritional medicine values of food and just knowing how to incorporate them properly. So I'm assuming the yeast you had was candida? No, actually, it wasn't. It was brewing yeast. It's a, it was a rare um, condition, and it was actually researchers in Israel from the, um, one of the endocrine hospitals there that done the initial research on it, and that autoimmune diseases can be induced by... Um, antibodies were called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so it basically <laughs> means uh, no more no more beer for me. <laughs> so basically, you so, had a uh, beer allergy that triggered all of your problems. A beer, a bread <laughs> allergy, yeah, baking and brewing yeast. Basically, I was going every single day and uh, invoking it, yeah, and that caused a lot of uh, knock-on effects. It was the knock-on effects that really caused the issues. It's kind of astounding if you look at PubMed, which is an online resource of medical papers, and you look up Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is brewer's yeast or, or baker's yeast or nutritional yeast, as they like to call exactly. it. Exactly. It is associated with cancer way more than you'd like to see. And it is one of the things on the Bulletproof Diet that is not on the, the green zone and is in, I think, at the very bottom of the suspect foods list, almost to the don't eat it list because it oftentimes contains MSG as well. So a lot of people are like, oh, it has B vitamins, therefore I'll take it. Like there's better sources of B vitamins. It's called liver. But, you know, <laughs> but, that's just me. But that's it. It gets, it gets touted so often. I remember I went back home and I was like to my mother and I said, so I, we discovered what it was because we don't actually um, provocation test where we done a pre-MRI, took the yeast, done another MRI, and then we moved it for two weeks on another MRI and were able to see the changes in inflammation. Um, my mother turned around and goes, oh, the nutritionist told me that that was really good for the brain and for, uh, <laughs> for the development. So I had that every day when you were pregnant. You actually born with a yeast infection in the eye, but the doctor said it was fine. And I'm like, oh, oh that's valuable information. <laughs> I, I, my take on this is that it's, you guys are looking at cell level biology. Uh, so you know what mitochondria are. They're the power plants in the cell, the subject of, of my last book, Headstrong. Like these are bacteria. Like what do bacteria hate? They hate yeast and fungus because they're competing for the same fuel source. 
So it's not too surprising that if we have uh, fungus or yeast or mold, uh, that there might be some competition at, at the cell level where the body's like, could we get this out of here because we'd like to have our you know, bacterial kingdom for ourselves? And yes, you can set up symbiosis and things like that, but man, I I find way more people are sensitive to yeast uh, than than know it, and I find that the problem is actually much worse in the U.S. because uh, in the U.S. we've been genetically modifying and breeding yeast to be uh, highly aggressive and fast growing because we're lazy over here. Uh, and I say that, and uh, you know, I embrace laziness as if I can do it in less time with less work. Of course, I'm going to do that. That's what humans do. Like that's good. But that means like the fast rise yeast here will create more of a reaction in people than the more traditional yeast that's oftentimes used in Europe. So it's kind of a fascinating thing to think even interspecies varieties could matter, but it seems like there's a difference. Oh, for sure. And I think it's definitely an an area that's on the radar. If you look at the research now which is a different type of immune reaction, but at Saccharomyces cerevisiae, antibodies have been commonly used in the differentiation of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, but now they say that could be linked to leaky gut disease and they're linking them to a whole host of different autoimmune diseases. And the researchers basically are at that level are still being perplexed on how to treat it. Well, I think that we are learning more and hopefully by talking about the fact that you probably don't want to eat you know, that salad dressing that has nutritional yeast instead of MSG in it, like maybe that's not the best choice for you and sprinkling on your salad is, is probably just not optimal, but maybe you can handle it, but maybe it's not the best you could do. So that's what led you into this is you got pretty messed up by something. You hacked the problem, you figured out what it was, and that led you to say, I need the knowledge of a pharmacist and a nutritionist. And how did that lead you into writing your book? So when it comes to the books, um, just to clarify, so Glenn and I actually co-authored both the books, The oh, Health Delusion and The Serve for Diet. Okay. <laughs> um, My bad, sorry. That's, that's <laughs> just how we met together. So when we, um, we met on our masses, and we actually overlapped with the masses, okay. and we formed like a friendship that way. And it was when we were doing the masses, what we realized was the nutritional evidence and the messages we were getting were so different to what was in the mainstream. And it was so bad that we even approached like the head of the course and said, why is nothing being done? Why are you not coming out and speaking up? And she essentially said, well, as long as in academic circles we're accepted, we don't really care. Maybe you will do it. And basically that's what we did. Um, Glenn had some, has media experience from before and we pitched a book for the health delusion, which was basically a myth buster of all the most common mistakes and nutrition out there and misconceptions and what we should be doing instead and which book came out first the health was, delusion that was the first one okay and the main point there like kind of give me the, the summary of what your findings were as you guys were working through this in school and as you went out into the world we we actually covered such a spectrum and, and in many ways i think that book was too ambitious in that we just had so many golden nuggets to share that we kind of just spilled them all out into one book. But, you know, this was a time when, you know, we didn't really have vitamin D on the radar. And, you know, we were sort of really breaking a lot of um, the vitamin D story in there. Um, but also, I think we were amongst the first people to sound a little warning bell that actually, as with any hormone, and we really should regard vitamin D more as a hormone than, than, a, than a vitamin, um, that actually there's there's sort of a U-shaped curve and over-enthusiasm and this sort of overzealousness that we've seen in some circles with vitamin D supplementation can almost be as bad as not having enough. So we sort of really broke that story, but also kind of gave the one, I think, the first little warning signs that actually too much of a good thing can, can be a bad thing. Um, we really sort of debunked um, this whole issue of high-dose antioxidant vitamin supplementation um, and, and really that's, that's I think, a, a sort of a big precursor to where we are today, really. Um, and that's this idea that, you know, it was sort of commonly a commonly held belief that, um, you know, free radicals are bad, oxidative stress is bad. If we just take enough, you know, vitamin E or vitamin A or beta carotene, um, you know, we can solve that problem. And lo and behold, you know, as 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 the studies were done that tried to, to demonstrate that principle. 
we found that actually those high dose antioxidant supplements, um, which are unphysiological, you know, um, they don't really respect the nuances of how our cells work, um, are actually uh, a sort of potentially not, you know, neither they're either unhelpful or potentially harmful. And we began to unravel and unpick that and then look at plants and how plant compounds work very differently to high dose antioxidant vitamins because they don't act as direct antioxidants. Green tea isn't good for us because it provides antioxidants. You know, dark chocolate isn't good for us because it provides antioxidants. It's the way these polyphenols act as signaling molecules that um, actually encourage our cells to become fitter, stronger, more resilient, more robust, which is where the sirtuins come in that I think is the real key here. So we began to sort of show that there was a much more nuanced understanding of, you know, oxidative stress and and free radicals. And actually, we began to show that there was a different solution there. Um, But we talked about a lot of things, you know, um, we talked about, you know, the sort of um, the importance of nutrition in pregnancy in the first two years of life and how we've sort of haven't quite got that right and how that's incredibly important for programming lifelong health. I mean, we we really touched on, I would think, a dozen huge issues in the health delusion, um, um, which have now become much more kind of common discussion points. You know, I'm sure lots of your listeners will be very au fait with things like vitamin D and a lot of these big issues now. Um, But that's where we started. We just felt, look, there's so much buried in academia. Why is it not getting out there? And we just really thought, you know, we can be champions of taking those messages and delivering them in a way that the public could understand. A lot of a lot of people listening still are like, oh, antioxidants are good. But the idea is the way we make energy in our cells is through the process of oxidation. So if you just suppress oxidation, like, oh, wait, I can't now use oxygen and food to make energy. And when I talk about polyphenols, the things you just mentioned, things like chocolate and coffee and tea and, and blueberries and all those sorts of things, the common way that we talk about this, say, oh, these plant-based antioxidants. And we say that because everyone has been programmed to think antioxidants are good, just like we're programmed to say fat is bad. And the bottom line is that the right fats are good, the wrong fats are bad. And when you look at plant compounds that make cells more resilient to oxidative stress, they're not actually antioxidants, uh, but we still sort of talk about them that way. So for people listening... Understand if you get a, a, a natural plant-based, quote, antioxidant, it's probably not really an antioxidant. It's more of a shield that helps your cells handle oxidative stress better so it can make energy better. And that's why I've shifted over the last you know, 20 years of my own supplements. 20 years ago, from the anti-aging field, it's like, yeah, you need you know, higher, higher dose antioxidants, the vitamin C, vitamin E. And now we're, at least I'm to the point where I'm taking, you know, eight polyphenomenal capsules and using uh, things like plants and just ridiculous amounts of rosemary and oregano and all the, the herbs and spices in my food because you, my goal is to get you know, four grams of polyphenols a day or more in my diet, which is four times what the average coffee drinking American gets. I, I'm guessing the UK diet is pretty similar in terms of polyphenol consumption. But this is what it takes if you want to live a long time. Eat your spices. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> I, I mean, I think you're absolutely on the, the right page. Um, and I think the game changer for us was realizing that biology and, and how cells work just wasn't that simple. You couldn't just chuck in a load of antioxidants to sort of kill the bad guys because, you know, reactive oxygen species or free radicals are ambiguous compounds. You know, they're, we need some. They, they, they fulfill some important roles in the body. We just don't want too much so it's a delicate balancing act and i think the thing that was the huge game changer for us was discovering the concept of what's called hormesis and this is the idea that um a small amount of something that in a large a large dose would be lethal or fatal or very damaging can be very good for us and this this really blew my mind when i began to kind of piece this together and which is the idea that actually these plant foods are not really providing us with antioxidants. They're providing, if you look at the way polyphenols are absorbed and metabolized, the body tries quite hard to excrete them quickly, to transform them through detoxification quite quickly. So the way to conceive of these polyphenols is more like 
weak toxins or messenger molecules. And what they're doing is they're talking to our cells, they're activating the stress response system within our cells. And what do cells do? The same as they do in response to stresses like exercise, they adapt. They become, they, they produce a whole range of powerful responses, which will be the body's inbuilt endogenous antioxidant enzymes. It will be these incredible um, cell protective reactions which reduce inflammation, which start to repair damage within cells. So really the cells are responding to these polyphenols almost like they're weak toxins that, that activate these stress pathways in our cells. And in response to that, the cells become stronger, more robust, more resilient. And, you know, and we, you know, we spoke about mitochondria, for example. Well, we know that if you eat the polyphenols that activate the sirtuin genes, one of the consequences of that is it will stimulate the production of more mitochondria, what we call mitochondrial biogenesis. So really the way we should be conceiving of, you know, those, those great compounds in green tea and coffee and cocoa in chilies, you know, there's lots of these foods in turmeric is actually as, you know, molecules, co compounds within foods that stress ourselves a little bit enough to make the cells respond and adapt and become stronger and more resilient in the process. And that's a massive shift for most people. You know, we, the minute we understand this idea of hormesis, um, the whole world of nutrition changes. It, it's really funny because one of the things that helped me recover from a really bad toxic mold exposure, and I grew up in a house with toxic mold when I was a kid, and it caused all sorts of health problems, including autoimmune thyroid problems and a bunch of other things, was I actually introduced more free radicals to have that hormesis or that hormetic effect. I used ozone therapy, and so I used rectal ozone and some intravenous ozone, which, funny enough, like that's huge amounts of free radicals pumped right into your blood and what it did is it told the mitochondria, if you can't handle it, die. <laughs> and the ones who could handle it get stronger and then grow new ones. And it was like turning the lights back on for me. It was really a profound thing. So that's oxygen a, isn't bad. <laughs> that's a really important point because when you expose yourself to that kind of stress, what you're doing is you're activating one of the key stress pathways in the body called the NRF2 antioxidant pathway. And this one activated, activates 200 gene signaling pathways. And this whole process is auto-regulated. And through proper activation of that pathway, we actually get recycling of what we class as antioxidants, the filament C, the filament E, the glutathione, and the coenzyme Q10. And these feedback in a self-regulatory format. Now, if you show up in blood and show that you have low levels of these, the big question that you need to ask yourself is, do you have low levels because you have low intakes of these filaments? Or do you have low levels because you're not sufficiently stimulating the NRF2 pathway, which recycles them? Because if you are adding in these supplements on top of it, you are feeding back into that NRF2 pathway again to downplay a, a pathway that's already downregulated. So people taking these supplements inconspicuously are actually doing huge damage to their health. And a, the, an easy way to ex assess it is, am I getting enough of these plant polyphenols? Am I engaging in exercise enough? Have I engaged in fasting? If you don't follow them practices and you are adding in them supplements, the chances are that instead of doing benefit, you're putting your, your cellular defenses down and, and you know, to put it bluntly, you are increasing your risk of all chronic diseases. You're increasing oxidative stress. You're increasing mitochondrial dysfunction. You're increasing inflammation. You're increasing the formation of advanced glycation products. And um, yeah, and that was the, like that's a big thing with our diets today. They're cal calorie rich and macronutrient rich, but really polyphenol poor. And these are the key drivers in a diet of these pathways. And we never ever hear of anyone recommending a polyphenol intake. As you said yourself, you're trying to take in four grams a day, but the average American diet is one-fifth of the blue zones. It, it's, a real, it's a real issue because a lot of times you think you're getting them, so, uh, oh, I'm gonna eat a bunch of plants, so you put some broccoli or something in there. You're not really getting very much polyphenols from even vegetables. 
Um, some have more than others, but it's the herbs, spices, tea, coffee, chocolate that have orders of magnitude more in them. And it's just hard to you know put a chocolate sauce on your broccoli because it doesn't taste good, but you're going to get more from the chocolate than you are from the broccoli. Well, here's the thing. If you take broccoli, you boil it for three minutes or steam at a high temperature for five, your NRF2 activating sulforaphane does not exist because exactly. you just destroyed all the my, my rosinase. So someone taking, you could eat a field of broccoli that way and someone drinking a few cups of coffee is getting far more benefit. <laughs> There's a hack for that. Do you, what, I, what I recommend is if you're going to cook your broccoli, which makes it taste better, uh, and there's reasons to maybe not eat too much raw broccoli anyway. You can take a tablespoon of raw broccoli and make a pesto out of it, or you can eat some radish that has the enzyme that'll unlock the sulforaphane that's in the cooked broccoli. Exactly. Uh, radish is excellent, wasabi, um, or mustard. But even raw broccoli contains a thing called ESP, which blocks, which forms nitriles. So even the, there was a study done on the ideal way to cook broccoli which I'm sure was a very exciting uh, <laughs> study. But um, the conclusion was 60 degrees Celsius for three to five minutes. Two, anything less than that, an ESP formed, stayed. Anything above that, and my rosinase got destroyed, which forms them beneficial nutrients. So it's a bit of a minefield. And I think we just need to be clever. Good intentions are not good enough. And we're seeing that in the rare diseases and ill well-being around us people need to educate themselves and that's where the value of things like your, this podcast for example come in well, well you've, See, I, you've done some so interesting work on on your diet recommendations and they're dialed in enough that like adele a heavyweight champion david hay a pippa middleton like you've got some some pretty successful people using the diet because I think they're feeling the difference from the polyphenols, but what else are they feeling? Like, like what happens when people go really heavy on the cert-friendly foods? Yeah, we've got a huge... So Adele and Pippa were press-discussed uh, press people on the, um, on the diet, but we have had people openly talk about it um, and the benefits they've got. And these usually always come from athletes. So the likes of Conor McGregor, David Hay, as you mentioned. And the reason that we, people like these, are such big fans of it because they are people who have such high demands of their body yeah. and they need them to work so efficiently that they, when you're at that 99%, you notice the difference of whether your mitochondria are functioning efficiently or something, you know, it's sluggish. You don't have to wait 20 years to see if you get a disease or not. And I think it's this allowing... Focusing on polyphenols allows you to have a shift from eating to fuel your current body's demands to fundamentally in change and enhance how your body functions. All right, here's, here's a funky question for you. I've read some not well-documented claims, usually from remote parts of China, of people who live very exceptionally long lives on a diet of mostly tea and herbs and Chinese herbs and, and things that are almost exclusively polyphenols and not even that much you know, raw macronutrient stuff. So they're essentially semi-fasting, but when they're not fasting, it's the most polyphenol-rich foods possible. Do you think that people can or should experiment on this you know, high polyphenols while, while fasting or almost fasting for longer periods of time? I think, I mean, it's an amazing question that gets to the absolute heart of, I think, what we're interested in. So one of the things that stimulated our interest in this field was the realization that these polyphenols, these specific polyphenols that we talk about in, in the book, actually activate the same pathways on a cellular level as fasting and caloric restriction. So that became really interesting to us because you know, fasting, intermittent fasting diets and caloric restriction have become a, a big talking point. And rightly so, there's a huge amount of research showing the health benefits of, of that practice for, you know, increasing health span and very likely increasing lifespan as well. But so we, we, we regard these polyphenols, and it's not just us, this is widely discussed in the scientific literature as caloric restriction mimetics, which means these polyphenols have the, the ability to mimic the effects of fasting and, and calorie restriction. So that for us gives a really interesting perspective on this because we think that if you, in, if you adopt elements of intermittent fasting or calorie restriction 
and add in these polyphenol rich foods as the basis for your diet whilst doing that, really what you're doing is you're taking that diet to the next level. You're increasing the activate, activation of these sirtuin genes which orchestrate this myriad effect on our, on our cellular health and, the, and our potentially our health span and lifespan. So for us, adding, doing that type of diet without these polyphenol rich foods means you've lost a dimension to the health benefits. You, you adopt a practice of fasting um, and you add in these polyphenol rich foods and you're essentially ramping up the benefits um, from doing that. And I would go as far to say if you don't add in these polyphenol rich foods, you're compromising the benefits you can potentially get through any form of fasting approach. So we're we're in full agreement on that front, and uh, definitely intermittent fasting with polyphenols is something that I find works better. There's a a few people out there who say, oh, if you're doing fasting, it has to be water only. Uh, what's your take on fasting with just water versus fasting with tea or coffee or polyphenol supplements? Or I, I suppose fasting with wine is a bad idea, but you know. <laughs> um, the thing that Asklan mentioned. With fasting, what we know is there's a cap on the benefits. Yeah. And if you work even in a clinical basis and measure things like hormones and different um, redox factors and cellular stress, you will see that kind of U-shaped curve of benefit before stress becomes too much and, you be, and harm occurs. What we know is that the way that these polyphenols work is not to directly stimulate the exact same pathway, but to facilitate their activation, which means it raises that cap, it raises the ceiling of which benefit is, no longer exists. And it allows people to experience much greater benefit and to buffer them from going into what we call the danger zone. I, it's, so for people, I think it's just an old age thinking of fasting and it's one that has been with us for millennia even through religion and we are they were so spot on but we have the science and the understanding now to appreciate that okay we can make it better and if we can make something better we should do it i don't know even if i said why my my interest in polyphenols comes from and that comes from my days in pharmacy because people's understanding is that there's this big dichotomy between big pharma and nutrition. And my belief is that there could be nothing further than the truth because 50% of drugs are now started as plants, plants that we overlook nutritionally for the medicinal benefits. So we take some of the most common drugs today, such as aspirin, statins, and metformin. If you take statin, we say it lowers cholesterol, but we know directly lowering cholesterol has no benefit at all. <laughs> say I that mean, again louder. <laughs> <laughs> we know this. There's so many studies. As I say to people that come into my clinic with a high cholesterol, I go, you know, I say I can lower that cholesterol. We're just appeasing the numbers, man. So why does a statin actually, for some people, have benefit where a drug that just directly works on cholesterol has no benefit at all and may actually raise harm? We now know that cholesterol is basically the warning light on the dashboard of the car and lowering the cholesterol directly is just removing the light and not fixing the underlying problem. So if you look actually how these drugs work, they actually activate these cellular pathways that are not getting activated by our diet. So if we look at aspirin, it activates the AMPK, the fasting pathway. Statins activate a nitric oxide pathway and balances sirtuin sensitivity. And metformin activates AMPK, sirtuin, and NRF2, upregulating our defense systems, increasing our mitochondrial function. This is where the benefits come from. And we've had metformin, We've been researching it for about 60, for no, about 80 years now. It took 60 years for approval onto the market. And it's only in the last 10 years that we understand how these work. And mm -hmm. now that we do understand how they work, we've got a big question to ask. Should we be relying on the drugs, which are piggybacking of nutrients, to activate these pathways for us, which more than the majority of the population do today? Or should we take that knowledge and say, okay, we now know what to do. We can add these plants directly into our diet and we can get a whole synergy of benefits. Because I can tell you this, 
that if you include these in the right amounts at the right quantities, we have the studies out there, such as the PREDIMED diet, that the benefit exceeds any of these uh, prescribed drugs for chronic diseases. Metformin is interesting because it's a well-known type 2 diabetes drug, and it's been used in the anti-aging field for a while because it mimics fasting. So about maybe a dozen or so years ago, I met with uh, Biomarker Pharmaceuticals. These were the first guys to see what gene expression changed with using metformin. At the time, I'd been on metformin for a couple of years for anti-aging reasons. And uh, this was somewhere down in Silicon Valley. And I kind of walked in with all these these you know white lab coat researchers and said, oh yeah, I've been taking it for a couple of years for anti-aging. And they, they kind of looked at me and they're like, do you mind if we ask how old you are? And I'm like, yeah, I'm 74. And <laughs> they just walked out of their chairs. But since then, uh, what research has shown is that if you take metformin, it permanently reduces your ability to absorb vitamin B12. But if you take the AMPK herbs that metformin is essentially derived from, it doesn't do that. And with aspirin, there's white willow bark. So all these things, if you go back to the plant compounds, you get the benefits, but you don't have the same types of downside. And this is a really good argument to say, number one, let's keep our soil healthy. <laughs> let's make sure we have really good uh, herbs and vegetables and other things growing, because if we can't grow these compounds, we're not going to be able to synthesize the one active because it's a synergistic thing. Um, it sounds like you guys are on on path with that vision as well, where you're better off to go Ex to the mother herb than you are to go to the compound? Exactly. I mean, metformin, as drugs go, metformin is probably the, one of the most amazing drugs yeah. out there. And we know that for proof, even the FDA have accepted that now because metformin is the only drug that's being approved by the FDA to be allowed to be tested for anti-aging. And that's the TAME trial. Like there was a study on metformin where they showed that, you know, diabetics who took it lived longer. And obviously living longer than other diabetics isn't a big boon. But what they showed was <laughs> They live 15% longer than healthy individuals without diabetics. The shoulder metformin helps with the middle age spread. It stops that increase in insulin resistance in healthy individuals that we accept now as part of aging. And as you said, it comes from French lilac. It was used in the 1800s to treat sweet urine, which we now know is a clinical sign for diabetes. And what we've taken it as a drug is we've isolated a compound and made it more potent for specific pathways, which also makes it more potent in its toxicity. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we happy to do this with one nutrient and just continue to take it? Or are we allowing ourselves to believe that if this nutrient can do it, what about a synergy of nutrients that have been shown to have the same effects and that if we take them in the whole food in sufficient amounts of the right type of foods, there's a bit of awareness of them types of foods, that they could produce such huge benefits. And we're not talking about one specific condition. We're not talking about diabetes because when we, for example, we treat heart disease, then we have an Alzheimer's problem. When we treat diabetes, we have a cancer problem. We're talking about when we activate these pathways, we see the rates of all chronic diseases go down because we're targeting the very cellular function, which this, which happens to go out of whack, basically, in these diseases. It's awesome that you put it that way. One of the things that concerns me the most is I've seen a, a bunch of, even like big documentaries and things, people saying, oh, heart disease, you have to eat this radical, low-fat, kind of lots of beans sorts of diets. And they're saying, oh, it's about heart disease, heart disease. But the things they're recommending are the same things that raise cancer risk. Like, I think this is what killed Steve Jobs. You know, you, you go on a diet like that, like, okay, yeah, you raise your cancer risk, but yeah, you might have lowered your heart disease risk. But when you're looking at the mitochondrial foundation for all these, uh, even something like metformin, which is reasonably safe, it reduces mitochondrial function in, in studies. Anyone can Google mitochondria metformin. That's why I quit taking it. But do I take herbs that mimic the effects so I get the same gene expression? You, you bet but I do. That's it, exactly. I mean, the studies for metformin have questioned whether it stops exercise adaptation. And again, that comes back to your, met, to your mitochondrial um, function. But and we got it because don't forget what we've done with metformin, we've isolated to a very specific pathway. There's a, I don't know if you've heard of a biotechnology company called NuCert. And what they are doing now is investigating taking metformin and saying, what about if we add in nutrients that activate 
extra pathways. So leucine, the amino acid for the sirtuin pathway, and nitric oxide enhances as well, which increase mitochondrial efficiency. Very nitrates, very commonly used by athletes for mitochondrial efficiency. They have shown that not only do they need a much lower dose of metformin to get the same kind of clinical effects, so proving the synergy of nutrition, but that they have, the suggestions that the effects go well beyond the limitations of normal metformin. In fact, for people listening, if you're uh, th- thinking we're sort of geeking out on this, I'll tell you there's an herb called gynostemma, which is a Chinese herb, and there's something from rose hips, uh, there's lilac, and all of those things are more effective than the pharmaceutical drug if, if you take them. And it, it's one of those things where uh, you look at that, like, why did you not know that until now? You didn't know it because there's a focused marketing machine around a patentable drug, although it's off patent now, finally, so you can get it generic. But I, I think there's a, a great case to controlling your AMPK pathway. If you want to live a long time, you want to perform well as an athlete, uh, you don't want to get Alzheimer's, you want to get cancer, you don't want to get heart disease, you want to get diabetes, like all these things. But like maybe you should fast, maybe you should do high-intensity interval training, and maybe you should take some herbs instead of some drugs. I, you know, just, just saying. And, and you, you guys have been leading voices in, uh, in getting that message out there. So, so thanks. Did I miss any of the herbs? Like what, what else do you recommend for that? Like this is kind of my own, my own stack. In, well, I, th- I think, you know, I think Aiden's really touched on this. I think, um, you know, we're not really focused on, a, you know, a specific food or a few specific foods. Um, in, in the book, we identified 20 foods um, with a spectrum of the polyphenols at high levels that we know influence these, these very fundamental pathways in our cells um and i think you know uh, we've mentioned some of them you know coffee would be on that list um green tea especially matcha green tea would be on that list kale is very high in certain of these compounds certain herbs are you know even things like parsley a great source of of certain of these compounds as well so i think our message was look you know we need to get away from thinking about superfoods or you know one food We'll solve this problem. And if we are to sort of, you know, get an effect more powerful than these these drugs and we really are to sort of, you know, put a huge dent in chronic disease, we need a spectrum of these nutrients at really meaningful levels. And that's not just, you know, adding one food, you know, to your to your to your meal. It's about eating a diet where, you know, these the, these foods are, you know, are universally included. Um and, you know, we, we, we really encouraged that we, we kind of created a, a specific juice that was a, a part of the diet where we could really concentrate these polyphenols from green leafy vegetables and herbs and adding in matcha green tea. And the power of this approach comes from not eating one or two foods. It comes from eating this spectrum of foods, which, you know, gives us this tapestry of polyphenols at really meaningful levels. And it's like a missing part. It's a missing component of modern diets, this lack of polyphenols. But the power comes from the synergy. And there's lots of research to show that you synergize these nutrients. They become much more than the sum of their parts. But we need to be... We need to be clever, though, as well. You know, I, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, because good intention isn't good enough. You need to know what the foods are, but you need to go beyond that. If you take turmeric, for example, potent in, in vitro studies, it's really good for gastrointestinal tract. The reason it's so good is because we, we don't absorb it. So you want to take that for a cellular effect. You have to add heat. You have to add black pepper. You have to add fat. Or alternatively, add alcohol. So if you want to make a turmeric uh, cocktail or something, that could be quite beneficial. Um, we hear the benefits of dark chocolate, but if it's undergone dutching, so much of the flavanols are taken out of it. So we need to look at the label and say, has it been dutched? Is there any processing techniques which are removing these beneficial compounds? Because so often in the food industry, because they are caught up with l- low fat or low, you know, or sugar content or calories, that's the they will do any kind of processing technique to reduce this and at a loss of the actual nutrients which give us the benefit. Even things, you take your green tea. How many people know that adding in an acid like green lemon or or adding in a small bit of honey stabilizes the calicans and increases the absorption of them? How many people know that while onions have been shown to reduce... um, Alzheimer's is only a special Japanese brand that have been bred with really high amounts of 
course eating that actually we don't get in normal onions we get them in shallots we get them in capers so that's what we need to do if we want to get it if we take garlic how many people know that we if we add it into the frying pan heat stops the formation of allicin straight away if we have it in our salads stomach acid stops the formation of allicin straight away which is the beneficial compound so we need to chop it we need to leave it for 10 to 15 minutes to allow that to form you know, um, berries, some polyphenols are enhanced by freezing them, some are reduced by freezing them. And we mentioned things like the broccoli earlier, or like extra virgin olive oil versus olive oil. I just think you're crazy if you don't go with pure extra virgin olive oil. Like the benefits are all in them polyphenols, which aren't found in the normal one. So I have to pick on you guys in the UK. <clears throat> when you add milk to tea, Milk sticks to the polyphenols, and you don't get to absorb them. So I know it's a traditional drink over there, but seriously, don't do that anymore. Uh, the UK has a much higher incidence of stomach cancer than they should have given the tea consumption because tea is against stomach cancer, and it's because of the habit of putting milk in there. So sometimes it's about mixing the wrong foods at the wrong times. And in just this level of detail, you don't have to be an expert on this, but you definitely want to have some of the right recipes and get it right most of the time. And if you just love milk in your tea and you do it sometimes, I don't care. But if you do it all the time because that's the way you always did it and you don't even know that it's costing you something, you know, maybe there's room for additional knowledge. It's just a, a small change, but it can make a big difference uh, when you're old. I mean, you're absolutely spot on, and we 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 sort of cover those little those little hacks and those little tips in the book. But you're absolutely right. You know, the same applies to coffee as well. If you're adding milk to that, then you know you're you're very likely to lose some of the these polyphenols. Um, and you know, and it's just those little things that make a huge difference. You know, knowing what dark chocolate has more flavanols in and which chocolates have, have, have really had them decimated. Those little adjustments, you know, adding some lemon to your green tea, they're simple things that we can all do that make a huge difference in terms of getting these precious compounds into our, into, into our body and, and, you know, into our cells, which is where we want them. Beautiful. Well, I'd like to ask each of you uh, one final question. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll go uh, in order here. So, Aiden, I'll, I'll start with you. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I'm going to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you offer them? On a nutritional level. Uh, no, no, just in general. Um, you've, you've, you've lived an interesting life, so nutri nutrition can be part of it, but it doesn't have to be. I, I'll stick with nutrition because uh, at least in that area of practice where I preach, there's no point in saying over, don't overwork when I'm doing 16-hour days at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you from my own experience, we all need more holidays, that's for sure. I think if we were doing it for health, we'd be taking a holiday every 8 to 12 weeks. Again, I don't practice that. That should be your number um, one, though. Hey, you don't have to practice your own advice, but you, you tell people to do that. I like that. I think every single person, I haven't met a person that doesn't need to increase their polyphenol intake. And when you're talking about true dietary sources, we're not talking about the issue where we're taking too much of a supplement where it can have an adverse effect and a negative feedback or turn from a pro-oxidant to an antioxidant or vice versa. So everyone, whether it's a vegan, a vegetarian, or you know a standard American diet, I haven't met someone who hasn't benefited from incorporating these foods and just being aware of what type of foods you need to add. In terms of switching from that, I don't think all supplements are bad. So I find in the... U.S. and the U.K., every, everyone at the northern latitudes, I think vitamin D has a huge benefit because we just don't produce it. And the most recent research in vitamin D has shown that it's not just low levels to have problems, but that it's a yo-yoing as well, which can cause serious cellular consequences. So when we get that peak in the summer and then dip in the winter, even though you say, well, that's natural because of where we live, it actually showing in studies it is not good for our health in any form at all. Um, in the UK, we one of the reasons where our health may be compromised versus the Americans is we don't have a mineral called selenium in our soil, which is really key for inflammation and oxidative stress and upregulating the body enzymes. So anyone that comes into me in the UK, I recommend that they always go on a, a selenium supplement. If they're not eating um, food from abroad, I, I, I always do lab tests and test them anyway, but I've never seen a UK person that didn't need a selenium supplement. And it doesn't come from the, it doesn't come from our food, 
people say get it from Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts are too have too high a variation, and Brazil nuts are high in radium. Brazil nuts yes. are high in barium so people should not be eating high amounts of brazil nuts so that's also high in mold like find a find a brazil nut that's not moldy they even smell like it yeah that, that's not, a, not one of my favorite foods <laughs> and um yeah well i guess that kind of covers three in total because i don't want to take time off land <laughs> and i know i've been yammering on so <laughs> nice um glenn what do you so think? I, yeah i've got three things um um, pretty much lined up here. So look, the first thing is if somebody comes to see me and say and says, you know, I want to be the best I can be, the first thing we need to do is understand that person as an individual. Uh, you know, and I'm talking about their individual nutritional needs, um, you know, their bio, sort of hormonal, biochemical, and really there, there's, there's, there's ways we can do that. So, you know, um, both myself and Aidan are massive believers in biochemical testing, you know, really in-depth, sophisticated testing of nutrient levels, hormones, inflammation, how the immune system's functioning, how the gut's functioning. And we really, if we really want to experience the best possible health, we need to respect that we're all individuals, different things will work for different individuals, and it's tuning into that and by whatever means, you know, some people will do genetic testing, you know, to sort of understand things from a nutrigenomic perspective, but we need to put the individual at the center. You know, we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to health. And I think, Dave, what you've said about your sort of health background, Aidan's example of that as well, um, if we can't tap into the individual and what's going on within that individual, it's very difficult to, to you know, get these great results on, a, on an individual basis. Um, so that's always first for me. It's just respecting the biochemical individuality of each person. Um, the second one for me is embracing this concept of hormesis. You know, this for me, it's just a massive, a massive paradigm shift to understanding how we can use food to elicit a really powerful response in the body. And, you know, how does exercise work? You know, we know that exercise up to a certain level is really good for us because it's stimulating this adaptation. We know the same is true of fasting. You know, up to a point it's incredibly beneficial and the same is true of polyphenols. And if we can embrace this idea that a little bit of what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, whether that's exercise, fasting or polyphenols, then we're really at the cusp of a paradigm shift in how we think about health. And my third one is, look, let's just learn from traditional cultures that experience amazing health because i can tell you now they're already doing all the stuff that we're we're you know thinking we're really clever in discovering you know they understand fasting they understand movement as a natural part of daily life and if you look at any blue zone um culture their diets are universally rich in polyphenols different ones in different geographies but this spectrum of polyphenols is a universal finding um, at high, you know, high intakes, high dietary intakes is a universal finding across all of these blue zone cultures. So I say, look, let, let's learn some lessons from them and actually sort of look at these cultures as a, as a, as a way to understand this whole paradigm that we're now beginning to unravel. Beautiful. Uh, thank you for that. Guys, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Great being pleasure. on. All right, your books are called The Cert Food Diet and Health Delusion, available where books are sold. And I appreciate your work. Appreciate you raising awareness of polyphenols as something that really, really matters and how they're different than antioxidants and better than antioxidants. And I look forward to meeting you sometime when in the UK. Amazing. Excellent. If you enjoyed today's show, you know what to do. Head on over to Amazon and leave a rating. Anytime uh, authors like Aiden and Glenn uh, or me see a uh, uh, see a, your feedback, it makes us know that the work we're doing matters. So thanks a lot for just taking a minute to do that. It's something that if you spend three four hours reading a book that spent that we spent thousands of hours writing, it's just a quick and easy way to say thanks. Uh, so I appreciate you for doing that. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. 
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.